The Quo Podcast. Change your way. Welcome to The Quo Podcast. I'm Ali. Today I'm talking to ageism expert and historian Dr. Sophie Gelsky as part of a new series of podcasts shining a light on some of the important issues faced by older Australians. We will be discussing ageism in the professional sense, the encore movement, and some of the ways new retirees can be supported in their transition to retirement. Sophie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So to get started, can you tell me a little bit about your career as a teacher and what motivated you to pursue a PhD older in life? I went into teaching um, very young, like I, had, I taught for 25 years. During that time, I constantly sort of was not only um, reading and um, preparing myself for my classes, but also doing um, extra university degrees. Like I went back and did a BA, BA honours, then I went back and did a master's degree. Um, I've got a master's degree. I also did in um, gifted and talented um, education. And so I've always loved research and I've always loved learning. Um, and in, in 2000, I basically just couldn't take the classroom anymore. I felt burnt out, worked extraordinarily hard, loved teaching, absolutely was a passion of mine, um, And but I, but I felt burnt out. So I was, I was also treated very badly by the principal and so I, re, I resigned, not with a view to retiring. Retiring was, I didn't even have it in my landscape, the thought of retiring. Um, I didn't quite know what to do, so one of my mentors suggested, um, why don't you do a PhD? Mm. And thinking back on it, I think I should have shot myself first and then shot him because <laughs> it was an eight-year journey. Um, again, absolutely fabulous. I loved my PhD journey. Um, part of it was because I could um, really um, do things independently. Um, there was no one really telling me, you know, what to do. So, And also the subject matter was very, very close to my heart. So, you know, sort of I love doing that. Um, and then that came to an end. And, and then I actually fell into an enormous hole. I was very, very, um, I just felt lost, completely lost. Um, I, I, I missed the community of school because school, um, if you teach, it's a whole world because you're reacting to your students, you're communicating with your colleagues, there's professional development going, there are always um, meetings. I mean, I used to get up at six o'clock every morning um, and the entire day was just driven by, of course, the bells and often didn't go to bed till 12 o'clock because, you know, having to mark my students' work, etc. So it was a very intense, very sort of fraught but wonderful sort of place to be and then when my PhD was over I just sort of thought well what am I going to do now mm. and I had no concept or no idea again about the fact that you know I had retired from teaching mm. and I had to look sort of for the next stage of my, you know life. Mm. So, so talking <coughs> about that was it hard for you to find work after you successfully completed your PhD after eight years? It was excruciatingly difficult um, not knowing really what to look for um, I just sort of found um, I'd lost my way. Um, it was, um, I had enormous support from my family and my friends, um, but I just couldn't see any future as to what I could do. I had, I experienced very serious relevance deprivation. You know, the fact mm. that, you know, you're no longer relevant. So did I get up at eight o'clock in the morning? Who cares? Did I get up at 10 o'clock in the morning? Did I do anything? No, it mattered to nobody, mm. you know? So it was really, um, it, that, 
retirement is a process it's not just an event because normally you, you know you start with an ending letting go of the pain the grief of your past identity and then you're in then you come to like a middle ground where you really it's like being lost in the desert you're trying this path trying that path that this idea didn't work this idea didn't work and that could take anything between six months and two years to actually find a direction or a project um, that you wanted to pursue and then and then then there is a new end there's a new beginning once you actually have found a new road or a new sort of you know passion or direction um, and you're full of energy and so you move into sort of a, again you assume a different identity so Thinking about your personal experience to begin with, uh, when you were working out what type of work you wanted to pursue, you were sure you didn't want to retire after finishing your PhD. Uh, did you feel that you experienced ageism as, as part of the recruiting process or, or in any of those uh, interactions as you tried to search for new meaning through new work? There were a number of projects that I actually, you know, sort of, I suppose, pursued, but it would, they didn't involve ageism, but um, in terms of sort of one of the, I guess, avenues that I wanted to explore was education because it's very close to my heart and I've got very highly honed skills in sort of teaching, um, was um, I saw an education position sort of um, from an organisation. I'm you know, not prepared to sort of mention, you know, the organisation by name. And having, I thought, exceedingly high qualifications for everything that they were looking for, I felt quite confident that I'd be at least sort of um, in the first round of interviews. I didn't even get to first base. So basically from this organisation, having not just the knowledge and the experience and um, high skills level and everything that they were looking for. I was astounded that I didn't even get to first base. I was crushed, mm. absolutely crushed. I thought, how is this possible? And um, anyway, Jackie, my daughter, was felt outraged. And she said, Mum, you've got to find out what happened. Um, mm. And so Jackie was very, very upset. And she rang the organisation and just said, Look, my mum's just um, applied for a particular job. Can you sort of explain as to how come she didn't come to f that particular sort of situation? And she heard that she that you know they were looking for someone younger um and um and so basically they weren't considering i suppose someone who was aged and in the particular things that they were looking for was you know that your intergenerational experience so you know i loved working with um younger people you know older people i i taught in different so different levels and and then to actually be precluded from this particular consideration for this position was the fact that you know sort of you were considered sort of too old I think that's terrible and yeah. it's very discriminatory. It yeah. seems to happen disturbingly often to people who are over the age of, say, 50 yes. or 55. Even sometimes 35 or 40. Mm. I mean, we've got a world now that, you know, sort of moves so fast and um, people actually don't stay in positions now as long as sort of I did, like 25 years. I mean, that's ludicrous. Most people would stay six months, maybe a year, two years, but they wouldn't look at, you know, I suppose looking at long term in one particular position. So thinking about ageism and, and how it manifests in workplaces, I feel like sometimes it's quite insidious. People aren't prepared to actively discriminate. But as you said, from your experience, there is that discrimination. Yep. So in your research around founding the company Navigating Retirement, did you look at how ageism manifests in different workplaces? No, um, because mainly 
I created um, this set of interactive workshops, which um, which actually examined, I suppose, you know, the transition from work to retirement, um, different aspects of retirement, um, looking at you know health and how you could, um, I suppose, um, move forward, you know, sort of with a healthy lifestyle. So it was more really the experiential situation between those people who've all, all of a sudden sort of retired and realised that they've got another 25, 30 years of productive work and what they were going to do with that sort of time in a constructive sort of way. I actually didn't consider really ageism as something um, that at that time that I thought was sort of important to navigate and to help people deal with that. So whereby I thought the course was, look, the co- I took five years to put my course together. So it's very, very comprehensive, but it did not look at sort of dealing with ageism because it really, the main focus was how to cope with retirement. And I guess embedded in that, you did do a lot of research around the Encore movement. Huge amount. So could you explain to people who don't know what the Encore movement, what is the Encore movement? Um, It was actually um, spearheaded by Mark Friedman in America. I was a social activist and he founded a, a non-profit organisation called Encore Org, which, um, which the aim of which was really to sort of find um, p- productive avenues for you know, ind- individuals who were post-midlife. Mm. So there's an over- overwhelming drive and, I guess, sort of expectation that people can be um, productive and be mentors to, let's say, juvenile, you know, students or, you know, students um, in disadvantaged homes and people finding sort of definitely a second career, an encore career in America. Um, I found absolutely nothing that sort of compares to that in Australia whatsoever. So I remember my, my PhD um, supervisor telling me who was a, who was, whose expertise was sociology or social psychology. And he said, Sophie, you will have to seriously think of what you're going to do, you know, um, after you've retired because you're going to be out of sort of work for longer than you've been in work. Okay. So which is very true. So I've now been out of work for 20 years. Mm. Um, you know, and I've still got hopefully another, you know, 10, 15 years where I can be very, you know, productive and, and, you know, contribute to society. Mm. So, and in actual fact, there's been sort of a lot of, I suppose, um, attention focused to this longevity of individuals. And now that, um, they're actually, you know, more, um, I suppose, in terms of population and greater more people who are, um, you know, over 70 than uh, under, you know, sort of 30. Mm. So you've got a very growing, huge, older population and not such a substantial number of, you know, younger people, younger generations. Thinking back to that transition that you focused on and that you're a specialist uh, um, around, how do you think young retirees can be better supported in both, you know, in their transition to retirement and in the potential for them then embarking on, on core careers. What do you mean by younger retirees are you talking about? I'm talking about people who might be in their 60s as opposed to someone who's established as, a re- as you know, a retired person in their 70s and 80s and might have already been able to get their footing a little bit. I created this extraordinary workshop, which I thought was enormously productive and rich sort of resource for organ- any type of you know, organisation that they could utilise to prepare people who were thinking of retiring. I didn't get any traction in terms of sort of finding me, inviting me to, you know, come to their um, organisation and give, let's say, sort of, you know, let's say one day or two day or five day workshop on really aspects of retirement. And I think, um, I know that there are now sort of some individuals like Catherine um, Rickwood, who is who works with um, CEOs of companies um, 
expecting them and telling them that 10 to 20% of their time needs to be looked at plotting what the future is going to be as to how they're going to manage their employees mm. to you know sort of start to uh, you know get people thinking about the fact that um, there's an obligation that you um, you know should prepare in some way um, the people who are leaving work whether they are voluntarily or whether they've been um, sidelined or because of the contraction of the company um, so I think that the the situation is I'm not I'd, I could not get into I it was a very difficult for me to actually sort of get invited to run my workshops and that was part of the reason after five years I, I can't tell you how extraordinary amount of work that I put in I decided to sort of um, close my I take down my website and basically had to turn to a new page because I had no I wasn't able to get traction for all the stuff and and it was all premised on my own experience so this wasn't a theoretical course it was a really very very enriching and very um, broad encompassing a very a lot of issues um, on on pe what people's sort of their difficulties and in particular I actually contacted the Sydney University continuing education um, um, school division and mm -hmm. I, I I described exactly what my course entailed and would you believe they weren't interested in me running it because they didn't consider it intellectual enough. Mm, that is again extremely telling and it, it seems like your personal experience which was again based on your personal experience prior to that is just testament to how important more support systems, more preparation for transitioning into retirement is. I guess your story is also one of hope because yeah. at the moment you found a rewarding yes. position at the Sydney Jewish Museum. Can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, how you got to where you are now and, and some of the support systems that helped you in, in your transition to retirement? People don't usually completely um, pick up a different a new career. Usually it is, um, usually part of it is to do with some of your skills or knowledge base beforehand that you might not necessarily focus on. Like, for example, maybe you've got a lawyer who's decided that he's going to retire, but he's always loved photography. Mm. And so when he decides to sort of, you know, opt out of law, he, he might think, oh, look, I might pursue sort of, you know, um, my, my phot photography. I love that. You know, so for me, um, as a teacher, I was a modern history teacher, but I but personally, I'm also second generation Holocaust. So I also have enormous expertise and knowledge um, garnered on um, the Holocaust and sort of, you know, the, the knowledge educationally teaching it. Um, but I never pursued that as a real, my primary course was teaching modern history, which I absolutely loved. That was a secondary interest. Um, and so what I'm doing now is actually marrying my skills as a teacher, researcher, and knowledge of the Holocaust by working, uh, volunteering for the uh, curatorial department of the Sydney Jewish Museum, researching um, various collections that they've got and then reviewing them. So as you can see though, it's not something brand new. So part of the, what made that possible really was I suppose my openness and luck that I happened to go to a lecture held by the museum where there were curators in conversation and during their talk they were saying that they have thousands of backlog of sort of articles that they can't deal with. So this time I didn't um, ask for them to, I didn't ask them to consider, you know, sort of whether I'd be the right person to volunteer in this particular sort of um, department. I actually wrote to them and said, look, these are my credentials. If you're interested in me coming to help you, contact me. Mm. And they did the next day. 
I'm also interested. Is your experience rare? Do you think of of finding something that has so happily, you know, incorporated all these different aspects of you and your professional and personal self into a pursuit in retirement that is really fulfilling? Do, do you see amongst your peers people who are in similar situations, or do you feel that there are some people who aren't able to? To find something like what you've found at the Sydney Jewish Museum. Look, it's very, very difficult. I think there's no、um, magic answer. There's not something where this is the solution and I'll provide it for you.、Um, you have to do. You have to find it yourself.、Um, it's very frustrating for people to say, "Oh well, don't worry, something will come along," which is the common line when people say, "Look, I feel really、uh, unhappy. I, you know, I don't seem to be able to find anything meaningful to do."、And、your friends say, "Well, don't worry, something will come along," which I found infuriating.、Mm. Um, but at the same time, you've got to try and help yourself.、Um, I think it's a very difficult road. It's a you know because it's so individual.、Mm. But what my my outlook is very different now.、Um, I look at life as a portfolio, not just sort of a single road. So sort of whereby teaching was my main and very very important identity. So now I look at it more holistically. I look at the fact that you know I, I volunteer. I choose to volunteer、um, for this organisation, and that's a very important. Part of my life, my grandchildren spending my gra- time with my grandchildren is a very important part of my life. So there are many more sort of like、um, I guess slices of my life that you know I suppose I have reconsidered rather than pouring all my energy into just sort of one aspect of it. So I think it's a question of really sitting down and thinking about your options and where you can look. And there are a lot of you know dead ends. I thought、um, sh- there was a. There was a new project that was actually very hot: teaching eth- ethics to primary school students. I thought that would be fantastic. I mean, you know, I love teaching.、Um, ethics, I think, is extraordinarily sort of in, you know interesting. So again, I rang the,、um, the particular organisation, and they said, and I said, look, I've got a master's degree in gifted education. I've got blah, and they said we're not interested at the moment. We've got too many sort of people who want to sort of teach, and not all of them would have been teachers.、Mm. Okay, so you know. You get a lot of, I guess,、um, knockbacks where you sort of, you know, y- you want, you may want to sort of、um, work for the art gallery, but there's a three-year waiting list. So, in a lot of situations, really, you've got to have resilience and you've got to have patience. I'm not a very patient person, but <laughs> so you've got to be able to, I think, test certain circumstances and say, does that work for me? No, I, you know, the organisation is too, you know, sort of、um, set in its ways, and I, you know, I don't have any independence. I don't think that situation works for me. So. What other situation can you find that is actually reasonable? So I think, as I said, this middle period is a very, very difficult and fraught period between finishing your career and finding a new path. It's a very, very complex and often very sad and very depressing. A lot of people suffer significant depression、mm-hmm. because you're no longer, as I said, relevant to anybody. Yeah, well, you've painted a, a very nuanced and complex picture, and I think that it's really important, especially for younger people, to、yes. have understanding of some of the challenges faced by older Australians. So, I guess circling back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, it seems like even though ageism might be not a direct cause of the difficulties faced by people when navigating retirement, it is. Something that is definitely in the mix and, and makes that experience much harder and more、yeah. isolating. Yeah, it is. Look, even today, people are now beginning to realise that there is a new stage of life, you know. And and the fact is that what are people going to be doing, sort of, you know, for the next twenty years, playing golf, playing tennis? I mean, there's got to be something more than that. So I think socially, there is, I think, beginning. 
to people are beginning to think sort of in, you know mindfully much more about really this new phase of life and how people are going to be enriched by it or how people are going to be treated by it or how people are going to be supported by it um you know and i think i actually asked my husband today you know what does your firm do for people who are about to retire and he said nothing mm. you know so i don't think that so i think somebody like Catherine Rickwood, who is a specialist in sort of working with leaders of sort of organisations to actually get them to, um, I suppose, appreciate or realise that they're not just, you know, when someone retires and they get sort of, you know, um, a bottle of wine or they get a pen, as, you know, that there's something beyond, that they've got an obligation beyond that, that when somebody is retiring, they're obliged in some way to help them, I suppose, um, think about, you know, what they're confronting and maybe even think about the ways that they might be able to, you know, facilitate and help that. Yes. Well, that's a really important point that you stress. Yeah. Um, I feel like from what you're saying, it seems like it's almost only individual actors in this space. Is there any, you know, lobbying group or, or I guess, organisation that you know of that supports or puts forward the perspectives of some of these people who are soon to retire to big companies because it seems like a huge gap in not in the market but also in the responsibility for these companies exactly. it's been a lifetime or several years for these people working at these organizations they're owed something they're yeah. owed help care a yeah. bit of care a bit of care and responsibility hmm. um and i think that I, I, there, there are a number of um, retirement specialist sort of um, organisations. If you actually Google retirement, there are a number of, you know, sort of organisations, but it always works with an individual. But I didn't find many organisations that actually push or realise about the fact that there needs to be a way in, you know, to change the culture of large organisations to consider the, the needs and the grief and the pain that people suffer once they shut the door. Mm, exactly. And I guess also from a socioeconomic perspective, not everyone um, has the money to pay an, an expert. Like there doesn't seem from my knowledge to be any free or heavily discounted government services or support. There's obviously if you need care in some way, but in terms of this psychological pain and process of grief and transition, there's really nothing out there at the moment. What's really interesting is sort of um, I got out of the blue, I got sort of a uh, a letter from a fellow who um, works with um, clients who are looking at um, um, finance, your financial situation after retirement. And for the first time, he is also offering social support. So apart from just financial, um, your superannuation and, you know, people actually who are about to retire focus very strongly on money, which of course is extraordinarily important but precludes completely the other side of the coin, the social and emotional side. And he actually is starting to offer, provide um, his clients also with a, you know, a social and emotional dimension of support. So I think there are obviously initiatives that are, you know, sort of, um, that are being introduced, you know, little, 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 little ideas. And I thought that that was a very valuable one. And um, I think he wrote a book and he asked me to review it for him. And that's when I found out that there's only him and two other people who are Australian who've actually written books about retirement in Australia, not just in Sydney, in Australia, mm. you know. But at least he is now beginning to look past just being a financial manager and a you know, financial advisor to also look at his and offer his clients um, support in, you know, very, very equally extraordinarily important areas. Mm. So, Sophie, as my final question, I'd like to ask, do you have any tips for people who are in the process of, of 
about to navigate this transition into retirement? Um, as I said, there's no magic bullet. There's no magic uh, or so single answer. I think that what's very, very important, I think, at this stage in life, is not your port it's not your CV, but it's about who you know. So I think networks are very, very important because I think even like a lot of jobs actually may be advertised, but then there's also a secret sort of, there's a lots of secret jobs that, you know, people pick up on because they happen to have lunch with a friend and he, she, he, she or he mentions that she knows that sort of a particular job is being looked after by certain organisations. So I think networking is very important. Um, I think you've got to be honest with yourself and sit down and ask yourself, look, what are my skills? What are my interests? Um, can I actually in some way um, make this, sort of, you know, a sort of a, an important um, avenue for me? I think you just have to um, go and test the territory, see where you'd be happy to sort of volunteer. That volunteer position might actually lead to, you know, sort of a you know, proposition of a part-time job. They've actually asked me if I'd like to be employed where I'm actually, um, you know, doing this work. But the truth is I'm very, very fortunate because financially I don't need um, the money. Um, but I, I love my independence. I love the fact that, you know, no one tells me what to do. So what I'm saying is other people in other particular, you know, sort of avenues um, could also be sort of, you know, offered that sort of alternative. I think it really is um, to give yourself a chance, give yourself a go. Um, I suppose be patient, um, keep your ears open. Um, and as I said, I suppose sometimes um, it might not work for you, but in six months time, there might be sort of an opportunity or an opening, you know, that, that will actually be, you know, I suppose um, the one, the right one for you. Well, Sophie, thank you so much for talking to us today and for sharing that advice. I'm not on at the process of being about to retire, but it still resonates with me and I think it'll resonate with a lot of our older listeners. So thank yes. you very much. Yes, thank you. Thank you.